I am at a secret disclosed location, um, undisclosed location. And um, it's, it's, it's in lieu of the basement. But exactly. the basement He's on the run. Uh, there's um, a Ronin that are coming after him for a uh, blood oath that they need to avenge. And he needs to and, be on the uh, move. That is not some position I want to put myself in, but we no, got to do sir. what we got to do. And you can see here that this says the basement. Right. So he's still and, in the basement. Yep. And this is a blanket that's going to fall. It's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Dylan and Joe podcasts. We're your host, Dylan. Oh, and I'm Joe. Hi. If you are following the true way and diverge a little, this will later become a large divergence. You must realize this. Miyamoto Musashi, famous samurai and also famous cave dweller who wrote the book of five rings. Today... Joe and I are going to touch upon a little bit about what we think we might know about the samurai in Japan. We're what talking think, about the samurai, the famous warriors of Japan. They go down. They're almost more legendary than other fighting figures like the centurion, the knight. They're right up there in people's minds. They're not just historical figures, but they're these legendary ideas of heroes. And we want to delve into that a little bit, tell you all the cool stories about it. But then, like we usually do, crack open a little bit of truth in this egg and see what's in that nice yolk about, okay, beyond the tales and legends, what's really going on here? What does Samurai really like and uh, what happened to him? Good way to get started is the quote I just said is very specifically about what the true Samurai is and the true way forward um, with their teachings and their studies and uh, a good way to 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 really try to picture this in our heads is in the Dark Knight when it's Bat Batman's trying to be he's a ninja it's ninja training but it's just so specific and so honorable and so about um, making the right decisions and choices um, and a, a, a samurai should follow those principles but we'll find out what what what, what the real story is later. Yeah, it's following a, it's the idea of following a code, right? Anyone can become a, a trained killer. But it takes more than a trained killer to become a samurai. And that code is part of the idea of becoming a samurai and stuff. But we still want to start off by at least defining what this is. Is it just the, the ideas and the stories and the legends of the guy with the sword? Or is it more uh, in-depth than that? So we want to talk about what a samurai is in general and what makes a samurai a samurai. First off, starting in, they're from Japan. Samurai originate in Japan. And they seem to have been much like uh, the Knights of Medieval Europe. Even though it's not a one-to-one -one comparison overall, Samurai would be what we would consider the Knights of Medieval Europe. They served under their lords, and they served to protect their lord and fight for their lord in times of war, and they ruled over lower classes like peasants. So they had the lords. In Japan, they're called daimyo. The Samurai, who are their fighters, their knights, and the peasants below them who would run the land. And they were, uh, samurai were, were originally created because there was a need for somebody like them. 
they had uh, basically, you know, government soldiers, and they had a lot of disputes between the daimyo, um, basically, just like Joe said, rich people um, who happen to have a lot of property and need somebody to defend those property. Uh, and things were getting kind of chaotic uh, during the Ha'eon Eon period, which was mm. between 794 and 11. 85. And this is when those battles of lineage and property uh, became a real problem where they needed somebody to defend that property and those people. Yeah. And that kind of person with the samurai. For me, there's a couple of tags that make it a samurai, a samurai for us. Like, much like we have those criteria we look for, like for the giants, we have the double rows of teeth, the red hair. What, what are the samurai things we go that that'll makes it a samurai every time? For me, it's Three or four things, and a lot of them came about after the spirit, the period rather that Dylan's talking about when they first started forming samurai. This is in the aftermath. We say this makes a samurai. Samurai have to carry their weapon around with them at all times. It's supposed to be part of who you are. If you don't have it with you, it's very dishonorable and disrespectful, and it makes you a target. Not only do you carry around one blade, though, you carry around two blades with you. One large sword called a katana and a smaller katana with you as well. That's used for a slightly different reason. But I want to talk about the katana to start out with Dylan, because this is like an icon. When you think samurai, you think katana. If you think Viking, you think axe. You know, it's just, it basically goes one-to-one. -one. When you think knight, you think a, a broadsword. I, I just wanted to bring up the katana, first of all, because that's just the immediate image that comes to my head. Yeah, the katana is one of the coolest swords, arguably, of all time. And quite frankly, one of the most robust ones that we know about. Um, it's designed not for the Genghis Khans of the world, but more or less uh, for a nimble knight who, who strikes with agility, but mm -hmm. needs something durable because they can, you know, you need, depending on what battle you're in, you could be getting a lot of kills with that thing and hitting a lot of swords and deflecting, uh, maybe deflecting bullets or whatever else people are going with. The legend. Um, yeah, and some of the you know some of this is speculated, but how they made the katana I think is one of the coolest things. Um, Are you talking about folded so, steel? As folded far as steel, yeah. yeah, and they fold steel to to allow it to be flexible and strong at the same time, mm -hmm. um, and, and keep it lightweight. Um, but they're saying the one of the ways they would test the the sharpness of um, of a katana is to hold the katana out and then take a piece of silk and just drop it from a couple inches and it would just slice it. Too. Wow. That's sharp. Some, yeah. You I mean, uh, from what I've heard about people who've held a real one, you just get the feeling that this could so easily just cut somebody in half, which is it's wild. what it did best. Yeah. I think you're right. Have a good point there. It's for uh, agility fighting. It's for precision and technical fighting. You could take those uh, big war hammers from out in the uh, medieval Europe or axes, maces, they're all worthy killing weapons, but they're made to be swung around large hunks of metal and just bashing away. The katana is not made to fight that way. It's supposed to be precise strikes and quick. Uh, most katana fights that have gone down in history that aren't in a war usually only last a couple seconds. Think about a gunfight. In a movie, it might last five, 10 minutes, and people are jumping behind desks and shooting and reloading. In real life, it's two or three seconds. Whoever struck first kills. And a lot of katana fights went that way too because of how lethal the weapon was and how even more lethal it was made by the wielder's technical skill. So most fights would end when you drew first and when you struck true, 
And that's usually how the fights would end up with between two people. It's over before it starts. When you get hit, usually it doesn't graze your chest. Usually it hits you somewhere you don't come back from. Yeah, it sounds kind of like a stupid statement, but uh, it sounds like the samurai wouldn't take that out unless they, you know, had intent to kill, especially to strike. Absolutely, um, much like a gun nowadays. If yeah. you don't, if you don't, if you pull it out and you don't intend to kill somebody, you shouldn't have pulled it out to begin with. You should already yeah. be in that mode as soon as you draw your sword. Another exactly, and another interesting fact too is um, what I learned is the the curvature of the blade. Um, they had multiple different types of katanas. Yeah, cool. the curvature Actually, is models. a big signature part of the katana, right? Yeah, and it's not it's not curved like a, a you know the uh, scimitar, scimitar which were the Arabian style braid, um, but the curvature is designed to be originally used on samurais preferred to fight on horseback. For starters, they're if you big can. horse horsemen. Much, much better to fight on a horsemen? horse than on your own feet if you can. Yeah, so it has to be long in length, and the the exact length is sixty centimeters. Um, but the, the curvature is because as the sword slices, um, the curvature allows it to, to be a deeper wound just because of the angle of it, which yeah. is pretty sweet as well. But from a fun fact, I don't even know where I found this information, but um, kendo, which means way of the sword, and that kind of is a... Yes, thank you. I was going to bring that up too. Yeah, that's the training yeah. in the way of the sword. Much like you train martial arts in uh, karate if you are from Japan, you train in kendo if you're going to use the way of the sword. They still use it yep. today. Teenagers take kendo classes in high school, even though those are wooden swords and not metal katanas for good reason. It's still hardcore. Still and hardcore. Um, with the katana, depending on like, basically, I'd say this is the model of it because the make would be the independent, you know. Uh, blacksmith. Blacksmith. <laughs> who, who makes it. But the, the period of time, like I think the first um, katanas were, were called Teichi. And then they moved on to Jakoto and then Kodo, which is a famous restaurant near me. Um, and then Podo from the Beastmaster. <laughs> I don't get the joke. I'm sure that's a joke. <laughs> I'll put pictures of Kodo and Podo up. Put them up, please. Yeah. I need them for my own education. Uh, Shinto, they look like which the is... Quiznos sub guys. Really? What are they called Quizno? again? The little uh, did they have monkeys. The monkey. They look like those monkeys. little Quiznos monkeys. Yeah. Not important. No sorry. Um, <laughs> so it is important. And then Shinto, and then moving on. That's like the most recent version, the ones you find more frequently because mm -hmm. they're made later. The Shinto. Well, Shinto is Shin actually also the name of the prevailing religion in Japan, right? Interesting. Okay. And then there's two, three other ones that kind of just move on with that. But um, gotcha. it's interesting that there's just not just a katana, there's other models depending on the time period, which I thought was kind of cool. They had. The Horo, which overall cover, was the name for their entire outfit, but each piece had an individual name, just like you would with a hat and a shirt. Um, mm. But the Horo were, were silk, silk clothes that they wore with leather armor. Um, some really cool pieces. Uh, you know, it, it, they would add different medals to that as well. And one of the fu more fun facts that I learned, and I'm sure you know this, Joe, besides the fact that they end up looking pretty scary. I mean, they would make those their helmets and everything. with. Yeah, they made them look like demons on purpose. Only. Yeah. To try to scare Demons the fuck out of you on purpose. My um, fucking hang on. <laughs> it makes them look terrifying and uh, some cool stuff. Is some of these scarier ones had like those big crazy mustaches that you see like in in movies in the you know, fog and there's this big mustached horned looking yeah guy the out fangs there. and the, and the, the yeah. dress. I mean, we're gonna put a picture up of some badass samurai armor, but some real you know, bad. Even though it seems an over the top and ornate, it's the kind of thing that just uh, inspires fear in your foes when you walk in a battle. 
Yeah, I wouldn't want to see that if I was uh, doing something. Um, Never mind a thousand years ago. Jesus Christ. Right? Yeah, exactly. When people would see someone who just happens to be really, really tall and think they're a demon. Exactly. Imagine this showing up on your door. I don't think so. Especially with that mustache. Like I said, that mustache is horse hair. Devious mustache with the horse hair. Real fun. Um, Something they did. Um, So it starts off with the top of the head. They had a bun and they call it's pronounced. I'm going to fuck this up. Mm-hmm. Chon Mage, Chon Maga, Chon Maggie, Cho C H O H M A G. So M A G E would be uh Mage because A Cho always sounds like Mage. A and E always sounds like A. So Mage, Cho, Cho Mage, Mage, uh, which was a bun and that bun served a purpose like most things on the samurai. The bun was designed to keep that helmet in place. Cool. Sure. Yeah. And now we yep. call it a top knot um, in English, but uh, obviously hipsters have taken that over and ruined it. But top well, the knots one used thing, to be a samurai thing. The one thing that the um, the uh, the hipsters didn't take from the samurai, they might have the top knot. They don't have the buzz top. Nope, because you have bun. you have to shave that head all the way back, and the top knot comes over. I mean, yeah, it wasn't made to look, make you look like a cute pie. You looked no. like a warrior. Yeah, your and dedication I, to being a true samurai. Exactly, and that shaved head look is—I have yet to see that, um, except for maybe Kevin from the office pulls a similar type of look. But besides that, that ain't that is not a thing. You got a 19 year old samurai who's yeah, he's got a shaved head right here. Looks like an old man because he just has hair here. Exactly. Yeah, it's young men looking like old men with bald heads and a hippie man ponytails on top. But they did it on purpose. Yeah, every day yeah. They maintain it. Yep, it was great. Real funny, funny look. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, again, we mentioned the katana, and then a part of the outfit that I mentioned. There's also the kimono, the hake mame. Hakame, Hakame, Hakame. I am Joe. Joe, what's the secret to reading Japanese? You just you told me ten hunt ten times. Oh no worries, I'll do it out right now. It's it's yep. like Spanish, where every vowel sounds the same no matter where you put it in the word. Doesn't matter. So a always sounds like ah, like kagashi. Hakama. Hakama. E always sounds like the sound a, like kamehameha. Mm-hmm. I always sounds like e, like ichi, yoshi. And then uh, what are we losing? Oh, sounds the same all the time. Oh, always oh. Oh, got it. Okay, so Hakama is the pants. Fundoshi is the underwear. Mm, nice. And then they typically wore on their feet sandals, which they would call tabi. And based off of the movie, The Seven Samurai, which came out in the 50s, which is an amazing movie. Everyone should Ooh, devote good three point. hours of their time to watch it. Yeah, if um, you're at all interested in samurai, you got to watch that. One of the great It was good. It, it, Kurosawa. Super good. Um, we'll pull up a picture of their sandals, but I thought they were really cool and not for today because we have glass and debris and stuff that would just rip your feet apart. But yeah. it almost looked like it was a mashed ball of like grass that was hardened and would cover just this part of the foot, but would leave the toes exposed, mm. which I thought was great because, you know, the toes that grip served a purpose. Can... Right. Yeah. 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 So their toes would be exposed to the dirt, but the, this part where all the balls, their feet were, would be covered. So their sandals kind of look like this. Just thought that was super cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's their outfit. So, um, I'd say that there's one other thing that makes a samurai a samurai that's going to come up between this episode and the end of it. Um, as part of the Bushido code, 
uh, which is retroactively named that, is the idea of seppuku, which is also known as ritual suicide. It's tied so closely to samurai, and it's part of being honor-bound to your lord or your daimyo or your family or being wronged. It, to that particular brand of person in that particular culture, honor in that sense, in the sense of that code, means more than your life and the life of your uh, you know, fellow man. It, it's important to do that. So a lot of times when people would have a, a major loss in a battle and they'd be captured, they would commit suicide in order to you know, maintain their honor. And sometimes they'd even do it when they didn't lose a battle because of the amount of shame, their failures. It's major problems they're, they're dealing with here. But instead of trying to run away and try to pass the buck and try to fluff it over, they took it upon themselves to end their lives honorably. And sometimes they didn't have a choice. It was whether you end yourself honorably or we're going to end you yourself. So it's up to you. And that is what the second sword is for. The smaller sword, much like a large dagger, is used to pull out of your blade. You write your poem, you say your prayers, and you dig the blade deep within your belly and carve your stomach open. And when you do that, you're going to... It's going to be incredibly painful. You're going to be gutted like a fish. You're going to slowly bleed out and die over time. And if people around you who cared about you and cared about your honor, part of the ritual when you're on your knees bleeding out is for someone to have one strike to the back of your neck and take your head right off and end your own suffering. It wasn't a move in order to quicken your death in order to, as a move of spite or wrath. It was more a move of mercy because you would have been dying for a very long time there. And it's a merciful move to say, you've done your part. You, you committed your own suicide a painful way. We're going to give you the easy way out and cut your own head off. So oftentimes someone would have their head cut off as part of the ritual by someone who is very close to them, one of their friends, not their enemies in particular. Like Joe would cut my head off if right. I was doing seppuku because exactly, I yeah. lost a card game. Right. Yeah. And I would do that in order to you know quicken <laughs> your suffering and you know be merciful towards you. Your enemies would sometimes do it as well if they believed in your honor and they believed that you were doing it for the right reasons. But you know, sometimes when your enemies were in spiteful of you, if you want to commit seppuku, they'll let you do it. Go ahead, bleed out. You you, you lost, in other words. Yeah. And That's some a of the things part I... of samurai for me. It's just always tied into who they are. Oh, totally. And um, uh, some of the things I learned about seppuku um, that, again, just based off of what I've read about it or listened to or watched, mm-hmm. um, it's your, you mentioned a million times, but to put in some concise words, it's if you really think, think, based off of the principles of Bushido, you fucked up so bad that you need to, you you have one last chance to get to have some sort of honor. You would no redemption this. besides this is your last. Yeah. Time. Like everything else is a fucking mess, but you're like, all right, well, at least he performed that. So his family is honorable still or something, but mm-hmm. something interesting is uh, apparently it was be- best practice to not completely cut the head off because they would leave just enough in the front. So the head would just fall down in their lap and stay there. Oh, really? Because, and they, they think that it's a practical thing because in, in battle or whatever it is, if you completely sever the head, there's just more to, it's just a, it's not one piece. More, more to pick up. Yeah. You more don't to have pick to up. play there's, head you, matching after the battle is over. Yeah. There's a bloody head rolling down the field, rolling down your floor. Wow. Like you gotta, now that you got a trail of blood, it's just disgusting. So like the, sure. if they could, if a skilled samurai could do it and then stop right at the end. That's um, even more skilled. I mean, even more difficult as it is, we should mention, we talked about this before 
by ourselves. But in order to chop a head off, it's not like the movies, people. It's very difficult to do, even with a large, heavy sword. And mm. it takes a lot of technical skill and practice to be able to chop a head off in one swing. And that's part of the reason why people get so proficient with a katana is because of its uh, light flexibility and its strength and its sharpness. Like you said, dropping a piece of silk over it to teach how sharp it is. That's what it takes to cut a head off. And if you could be so good at technically to cutting a head off and you could stop at the last second, that's some real sword skills real, beyond anything real that you big time. nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. We've all seen forged in fire. And when the, when the guy goes, it will kill, it will kill. And he has to cut a pig in half. He still can't like, it's like, and he does that for a living. That's what he does. Is, he knows all yeah, about it. He, he goes on TV and just cuts pigs with homemade swords. <laughs> it's, it's not easy. And it's not, it does not, it's not easy. I mean, Way easier in the movies than in real life. So when yeah, it actually did happen in real life, it was something to behold. Yeah. Yeah. It's really something. Um, so uh, we didn't mention either, but, but Samurai also used, um, so you got you got the the katana, you've got the smaller version of it. Um, they were also skilled with other weapons, like um, it was more or less a spear. Um, for... Very, yeah, the spear. It almost looked like a, a katana on the end of a, a pole. There, it's built similarly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And um, and also guns, because when people brought That's guns right. over during wars, they end up learning how to use those with the match drawn and. and... Yeah, arquebuses and then into muskets. Uh, but yeah, also bows as well. And this for the same the bows, reason. Yes, yes, bows specifically. And we'll get into that later, but they were we ex- absolute expert marksmen. So um, I mean, they, they dedicated their life to it, rather. I mean, the samurai weren't the one building their swords and they weren't the ones working the fields and they weren't the ones, you know, crafting homes out of wood. They were the ones who were trained to kill. They learned how to kill with a sword with a bow, whatever. That's their life. They're warriors for life. And they got, you know, handsomely paid for it and taken care of for it. But that was their only skill set. They were dedicated their life to being able to take another man's life. That's what they did. Yeah. And there's not a lot of that these days where you're 100% of your life is devoted to one mm-hmm. basically trade, like a, you know, like Buddhist monks do that. That's just right. what they do. They go and pray. Um, and samurai did this and <clears throat> and so, from your waking moment to the moment you go to sleep like i said they were required uh, as, as part of their code and then later on by law as the time went on to carry around both swords at all times if they caught a samurai without their sword they were um able to kill them it, it was it was totally fine it's like if the samurai walking around town without a sword you're not a samurai then if you leave your sword behind so you're you're totally legal to kill them right there and then so they carried around both swords at all time not only to remind them they had to you know, fulfill their duties as samurai, no matter what time it was a day. If you're alive, you're still a samurai, carry that sword around. But also that second sword to remind them you're still a samurai. So in case you need to kill yourself, that's always there to remind you that second sword's for that. Don't ever forget that. Crazy. It's insane. It's weird. This was a time. And what a way to live the world. And um, it's probably a good time to segue into the uh, code of ethical conduct. Yeah. Let's talk about the Bushido code. Bushido which is translates loosely to military night ways. Um, and it is this code of kind of eight principles uh, broken into a lot of pages of stuff um, was originally not on pages of stuff. It was uh, word of mouth. You yeah, talk to it mouth, mouth to mouth. mouth. Yeah. <laughs> mouth to mouth, yeah, mouth, to mouth uh, translation or, or um communication um based off of the teachings of confucius 
Yeah, strangely and enough, a lot Zen of those Buddhism. old teachings from Buddhism and Confucius, that which would come from China originally. Yeah. Yep. So loosely based off of the principles of theirs of them. So, um, yeah. So I've got the the eight virtues of Bushido. Um, the first one, I think uh, these actually aren't designed to be in any specific order. It's just that they all hold equal importance. Yeah, exactly. It's um, like the rainbow. It's no favorite color, but red starts. Right, right. Um, number one of the eight virtues, which makes perfect sense uh, for based off of what everyone knows about them, is martial arts knowledge and integrity. Integrity. When, yep, and integrity. Uh, so when to basically you have this crazy knowledge that can kill people, but don't abuse it. Um, uh, courage, which they've made very clear is different than bravery. Courage is a lot harder than just being brave. It, mm -hmm. It's it's a much more ethical um, backed terminology than bravery. How so? What's the difference between courage and bravery in that sense? It's kind of hard for me to describe. You might be able to help me with this. Um, courage is like, is more or less like it's the combination of you know, admitting you're wrong with doing the right thing always. So if samurai were, you know, saw uh, terrible things happening to somebody in public, it's their responsibility to stand up for that. No matter how hard it is, it might be easier mm -hmm. to just walk by somebody, somebody getting robbed because you want to get involved. Right. Um, yeah. Courage is using what you, your integrity and your values to do something about it. Bravery would be like, I'm gonna jump off that cliff because it's gonna somehow benefit me uh, to do so. Yeah, um, it makes it's more good. about yeah, other that, people. Yeah, that seems to be, it's brave to to charge in the first line of the war. It takes courage to to not fight because you know it's the right thing to do, even though people will yes you know, think you're a pussy or a wimp or whatever. That's yeah. what. Yeah, bravery is wielding the sword, and courage is the the ability to <clears throat> put your sword away and take that take that beating take that shame to know that this is the right thing to do it takes courage to do that not yep. bravery yep exactly um the third one would be mercy so very clearly don't um that's a big one yeah if, if you're if their enemy you know uh surrenders or does like that don't cut their head off um mm -hmm. unless know, they're they... committing sabuku then you're doing that to be right right exactly and if they're you know say they're retreating or they're run, you know that running away from you don't just go shoot them in the back that would be an example of that uh, politeness was on there. So, you know, they're going to be able to open the car door for their women if they, uh, they need to. Um, yeah. I feel like that's more like the greasing the wheels of society, like, uh, the chivalry, the knights thing. It's like, this right yeah. thing to do. It, it just helps yep. everybody out. If you conduct yourself, like people are supposed to look up to you. So you should conduct yourself in that way. Yep. Uh, Makoto, which is, uh, translated to sincerity and honesty, no matter how hard it is, tell the truth, uh, honor, loyalty and they most importantly self-control self-control um, yeah. and that comes really into play Discipline. with Bushido because because um they have a license to kill anyone anytime that's exactly right i think we that's brought why. that up yet but depending on what era we're talking about but for most of the time the samurai existed they had the right to kill anyone who disrespected them because that was their position if you would uh see a samurai out at the tea house and he spat in his face and called him names and disrespected him he had every right to cut you down right there and then and people would drag your body away and that would be that there's no repercussions you disrespect the samurai they acted accordingly they have carte blanche to do whatever they want as long as it's for the bushido code and for the honor code that's the way it is it is and you said something that, that comes up a lot the 
when people describe samurai, they say cut down a lot as opposed to like cut them in half, cut them with a sword, him a sword. It's always cut them down. And they said that strike them down, strike them down, cut them down. Like that, I can't believe he just cut them down. We're not going to let him on our samurai team, that type of stuff. Sure. Um, But that's always what's what's being said. So what's an honest with that idea we brought up earlier, right? It's like pulling a pistol out. You shot him down in the street. You cut him down. It wasn't it wasn't a brawl. It wasn't a, a fencing match. You cut him down. You talk shit. Sword comes out. Shouldn't be more than one swoop, and you're on the ground bleeding out, and that's it. If that's a real samurai, yeah. he'll put you down in one. That's it for you. You made a mistake yeah. that you can't soon forget, and your family can't even uh, come and plead and beg for your. The, the best they can do is apologize for your stupid actions before you get cut down by a samurai, and it's on them. Exactly, and they had, they were given that that basically that right to cut people down any time because not because they just threw this out there loosely. They knew that based off of Bushido, they would always do the right thing. So you could trust that, say you hire this person, you know, his values are set in very stone, basically that you you can predict what they're going to do. And they know that they're just not going to swing a sword around the street and kill people. Um, So to give someone such a, like, let's say license to do something so crazy. License to um, ill as it were to be right. Yeah. You know that uh, they're not, they, they, they're going to make the right decision if they're yeah. a true samurai. It's power and responsibility, right? If you have the mm-hmm. the amount of power that you have as a samurai uh, to <clears throat> cut people down like that and to dedicate your life to warfare, you have the responsibility to carry yourself in a certain way. So you're going to be judged like that for the most yep. part. We'll find exactly. out. Exactly. And happens. they do to, since you mentioned judgment, um, yeah, they have the eight virtues. And what makes a good samurai is that they follow the eight virtues, all of them. Uh, they uh have courage to stand up to immoral acts like uh people doing bad things to other people um they have equal self-control in all situations so they're almost the same in in here as they are when they have a cup of sake couple three you know whatever it is they don't ever go crazy um uh they never waver belief in the code so they're not ones to question it and um just be a person of action with self-control is what that all means so simple life a lot of these dudes didn't have a lavish life they were pretty much just had enough to get by um and a lot of uh how they got by was just being paid in food you know since we're we're the whole point one of the points we're trying to make today is what it was like to be in that time and what samurais were actually like you know it's good to get a little perspective about how they fought the wars and what they're skills were in, in, in a realistic the combat that you've described so far is so specialized i mean right. it's, it's really majority of what they were hired for um but um there's some other things that we didn't touch upon where it's more more the the general warrior in them type of stories that doesn't really separate them too much from other type of warriors at the time especially with cavalry and that type of thing um <clears throat> so I can't tell if this guy named Suka Kumi in 1274 was an emperor or a shogun or a daimo, but uh, sorry, demo, but I believe he was more closer to a shogun um, just because he was given orders and he was, sounds like he was in control of Japan. And I don't, I don't know if he was the emperor or not, but we'll, we'll clarify yeah. that. For as guys. far as I can see from most of Japan's history, the emperor is more like Queen Elizabeth and the Britain right now. Uh, and Great Britain, they don't do like, a whole lot, right? Yeah, they don't do a whole lot. They're just a nice symbol. But the people who are really in power are the people who really, you know, move and shake the world. And then the ancient world and even the, the modern world, if you have the guns, you're the guy who makes decisions. 
Right. So this would, sounds like he's a shogun to me. Um, and uh, the islanders of Tsushima in 1274 first noticed the black shadows in the ocean. Oh, the ghost of Tsushima. They were the ones who noticed them first. And those black shadows were water boats of the Mongols. Water and boats? Water boats. Yeah. Kind of water boats. Did I write what? I didn't even write water boats, ships, you know, Mongol style boats. I just say water boats. So, um, airplanes. To be, to be fair, airplanes are called airplanes, even though they're just planes. And water boats should be yeah. called water boats. Water boats. So the story starts with, um, with our friend Genghis Khan, who I think out of everybody in the whole world, if you're on 23andMe, they can trace their lineage back to him. Not necessarily us. because Biggest we're spread of all time. All-time champ, most kids he, ever. Most, kids. most kids ever. Lineage is insane with Genghis Khan. Um, and uh, he had a piece of shit grandson named Kublai Khan. And Kublai Khan did the same thing that Genghis Khan did in every way, shape, and form, killing millions of women and children and people in Asia. And uh, it sounds like he got a little bored around 1274 or maybe a year before that, a couple years before that, and decided to send Japan a letter telling them that he really thinks that it's time that they surrender to him for absolutely no reason. Um, and, uh, you know, he's the king of the world. Genghis Khan took yeah. over. I mean, submit or die. Submit to us or we're going to come kill you. So that day came and the islanders of Tsushima noticed the, the dark figures in the ocean. And um, so Sukakumi sent out 80 mounted samurais on horses to go defend the beach and mm. from this attack. And I think uh, what started from there... Um, of those boats, there were a thousand Mongols on them. And the samurai were at first very good at defending them because they used their marksmanship skills first. Easiest, right. quickest thing, most accurate, pick them off, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But they were quickly overwhelmed by the overbearing power the Mongols had in their archery. They're basically the type that would just shoot a billion arrows up and they would just start raining down arrows. Yeah. I um, mean, no knock on the samurai. The Mongols were some of the best archers in history and they used that to basically carve out their empire shooting an arrow on horseback historians think is the number one reason why the mongols were able to take over that much land no one else could shoot an arrow like them and no one else could do it at 45 miles an hour on a beast like they could no thanks nope no thanks not for me terrifying ruthless killing and um and so they 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 come they screwed up that whole entire island of shishima and then they hit up the island of iki totally ruined them too and then they decided it's time to hit mainland japan this is all within you know a, a certain time period mm -hmm. and on the mainland of japan um the mongols brought gongs drums and bombs uh, and bombs a ton of noise you know you picture those old school bombs made a ton of noise scared the shit out of everyone because it was just so loud or whatever it is um they Probably the uh, loudest thing you ever heard at the time, right? If you heard a absolutely bomb go off, explosion, you never yeah. hear something that loud ever. Besides, if a tree fell or a thunderclap, maybe. But thunder, thunder, volcanoes, and yeah, volcanoes. Yeah, that would be the loudest. Yeah, and you're seeing human beings make these noises. Pretty crazy. Um, a couple of players uh, <clears throat> on the samurai uh, front who wanted to be make their names known, like one of his name was 
Sway Naga fought really, really hard, um, pushed the Mongols out. Um, they ended up coming to the mainland and getting, getting messed up and retreating. Um, and then after that, like a year later, the <laughs> Mongols sent the adversaries back and uh, told them, hey, you know, we still um, hate you guys and want to take you over. And they, uh, so yeah, so um, our Shogun buddy there uh, had them all beheaded, as you should. <laughs> and Gotta Kublai Khan decided uh, it's time to uh, come back in 1281. And uh, same thing, they, they were forced them out to sea, uh, which is a really interesting story. So um, they, they, um, they forced them out to sea with like sandbars. They just kind of set up defenses so they couldn't board. So they were kind of just floating around um, trying to find an area to attack. And the samurai met them in the water, boarded their ships and started just going to town on these guys, just cutting them up on the that's ships nuts. and that type of stuff. Because you want to be, yeah. cl- if you're a samurai, you want to be close up. But if you're, um, you know, the Mongols, you want to be far away as you can to get close to yeah. you. Yeah. I mean, even though they're amazing at the long range, if the samurai gets you toe to toe that close, the Mongol army wasn't built to be dueling with samurai they're really kind of they were they were brute i mean they had brute strength bigger weapons that type of stuff but have a have one have a samurai on your ship who's going to be the agility of that is just really something so um same thing we're able to screw up enough of them so they pushed them back and then um and that's kind of actually where the story ends so one of the big kind of the thing here is the uh the story doesn't end here it just it's it ends the fighting really sort of ends here the samurai were big into more or less prayer and they did a lot of stuff to pray that they don't come back, that type of stuff. They came back and a storm came and fucked up the Mongols big time. So like by the end of the storm, they were floating on boards if they weren't dead yet or that type yeah. of stuff. And, um, <clears throat> and uh, that almost sounds this, like a, di- a divine wind struck. Pretty much. Yeah. That's actually what it sounds like. And the, um, and uh, so the weather fucked them up and the, Samurais executed all the survivors. That's the end of the story. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's it'd be story. hard to to um, knock the people of Japan for believing in the idea of the divine wind because it happens again and again and again to the point that um, they they were saved from multiple invasions by the monsoons and the storms mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. kinds of issues where. We didn't actually mention that much earlier. Japan being an island, a nation in itself, that's part of the reason why they're so secluded and when they could be themselves, you know, isolated for so long compared to China, Mongolia, Russia, all the other parts of Asia, um, as opposed to other parts of it. And that divine wind, as it were, helped them many times to the point where there's a phrase for it, which we know and love now. And it doesn't mean the same thing to us as it did to them at the time, but the name for divine wind is kamikaze. Can you imagine what that might mean? Mm, interesting. That's what it comes oh. from. The, the divine wind, the idea of him sweeping their ships against the sword, against the shores rather, and saving your nation at the outer power. Pray they don't come back. They come back and their ships wreck against the rocks. That's the kamikaze, the divine wind come to save us all from the invaders. Who would have thought that was what that meant? All right, so we're going to talk about the Sengoku Jidai period, which was well after the period we were talking about earlier. The, the beginning of the idea of a samurai, Dylan's talking about the uh, 900s and on 
they still existed until that time. But when you're thinking of the popular culture idea of a samurai, what it means to be a samurai, you're probably thinking about this period of time in Japan. In the 1460s, so in our minds, you're getting into the late Middle Ages and almost into the Renaissance in Europe, as far as Italy is concerned. You'll soon get into different times of how different kingdoms are going to work out. In Japan, this is a huge period of unrest. The, the whole entire country has never been all unified together. It's a bunch of small clans all around the country. And at the time in the mid 1400s, it's going as decently as it can. It has uh, the idea of an emperor, which is the person who's supposed to be ruling over the whole nation, but people aren't taking it seriously. And there's so many individual clans that they're basically living on their own. And that's, that's how it, it's going to be. You live your own life uh, and just do your own thing. But as we know, history never works out that way. As soon as people think, I can get probably take that from them, it starts to pop off. So in the mid-1400s, two of the major clans in Japan start a war with each other. And instead of one defeating the other, they actually light the powder keg, which is the whole country. And it starts a war, a civil war throughout the entire nation of Japan, hundreds of clans all fighting each other for 100 years. It never ends for a hundred years. So people were born and died during a time that all of Japan was fighting itself, clan after clan, backstabbing, alliances, killing off, betrayals. It was just a fucking powder keg and a mess of things going on there. There's no chance in anything going right. And it all comes to a head historically, and it didn't seem so at the time, in 1548, which is what we call the Sengoku Jedi period, which means the warring of the clans or the war for Japan. And that's when we start to see the samurai in the way that we picture it now, not just as the, the wandering warriors serving their local lords. So we have the, the system that, that is set up where we said earlier, they, they fight for their lords. So each of these individual clans, hundreds of them, all had their daimyo, their lord, and the samurai that fought for them. And it only took until this time, 100 years or so, for someone to gain enough power to try to make this thing what we know now as Japan. So in 1548, there's a couple of clans bumping around near Kyoto. So Kyoto, do you know what Kyoto is? Do you have any idea like what that might be? Well, are you asking me? Yeah, yeah. Well, I just also, think it's funny. Also, you, just, please, you said there's a couple please. of clans just bumping around Kyoto. Kyoto is a song by Skrillex. <laughs> exactly right guess what year we were born that's exactly <laughs> we, spent, we spent our youth listening to skrillex kyoto is a song is, by skrillex which and is, is based on which is which shows uh when we were partying a little bit more in the mid-2000s when kyoto was fucking hot what you know about dubstep it's still popular <laughs> don't think so dubstep's not but it still still brings you back Brings it back. Skrillex is here. Uh, so um, that is what I know about Kyoto. Nice. So Kyoto is the capital of Japan. Uh, it's a seat of power for the all the hundreds of years you heard of it. We always think of Tokyo. Tokyo is a big city. And we would think it's like the New York City of Japan. And it is because New York City isn't the capital of America. Washington, D.C. is. Kyoto is that for Japan. And it was a larger city for hundreds and hundreds of years is the seat of power for the emperor in Japan. So Kyoto is the seat of power and the emperor is the icon of power. The icon of power at the time though, didn't really hold much power. 
it's just the idea of this person. He's part of the dynasty. He's someone's grandson, someone's great, great, grandson. He's more of a figurehead. He sits in his palace all day and he, you know, writes poems and learns calligraphy and learns how to play violin or whatever. That's all he does. The real ruler of Japan is the shogun. The shogun is the ruler of the military. So the shogun and the emperor both reside in Kyoto at this time. And they're... Uh, so he's the one running shit. So basically all the clans of Japan who want to take over, you know, the rule of the emperor have to take out that shogun in order to do so. If you can hold the emperor in power, you hold the right to rule. As a, In other words, like if you can say the emperor is on my side, therefore I'm the one in charge and you guys will all fall in with me. I have the right to rule. So there's a couple of clans bouncing around that are very close to Kyoto that make this story what it is today and turn Japan what it's going to be. Back in 1548, when this period starts, there's two clans fighting around uh, Kyoto. So I want to bring up our, our four main characters of this because the names are so confusing. I wanted to like <laughs> lay them out and give a little like idea of who they are. That way, when we talk about them, I don't have to keep saying long Japanese names that we're all going to forget as soon as I say them anyways. It'll be easier this way. So our four main players of the Sengoku Jedi period are... Oda. Oda is the leader of the Oda clan. His name is Oda Nobunaga. Nobunaga, rather. He is the proud clan leader, the guy who wants to, you know, rise up from all these hundreds of clans and say, I'm the guy who should rule Japan, and he's going to do it. That's Oda. We got Oda. We also have Tokugawa Yasuo. Tokugawa is... One of the guys who has a clan really close to Kyoto, but he starts his story as a little boy. He's got nothing. His dad runs the clan. We also have Hideyoshi. Picture him as Yoshi. Remember him in your head, like little Yoshi. He's a little servant. When this story starts out, he's Oda's slipper boy, where his job is literally to carry around his slippers for him from place to place and polish them and probably whatever you know servants did at the time. That's his job. And our fourth character is going to come up is Hattori Hanzo. I recognize the name right away from watching Kill Bill. In the Kill Bill movie, he's the guy who makes her the katana that can cut through anything, the Hanzo steel, the Hanzo blade. Uh, that character is named after this historical figure, Hattori Hanzo, who is what you picture as a ninja warrior. Like the idea of a ninja on your head from the, the, you know, the stealthy missions, the cutting people down, all the cool ninja shit. This is the guy. Hattori Hanzo is a ninja and he is a huge part of the story and he's not a samurai at all. It's a ninja part of it, but ninjas are in it too. And when I was researching this, I found out that strangely enough, Bushido code be damned samurai are in all these provinces. The real honor lies with the ninjas. As I learned more and more of the story, the ninjas are always loyal and they'll fight to the last for their own people. And the samurais will change sides whenever the wind's blowing to try to get yeah, some extra so money. That's a question that I had the entire time. Mm -hmm. What is exactly the difference between the ninjas and the samurai? I mean, I know nothing about it, really, to be frank. So even though I didn't research this too close, this is just going off of what I understand about them uh, just from my previous knowledge. So samurai, we establish are like knights, right? They're like the the lords that, that, that fight for their lords, rather. They're the warriors that fight for them. So... No matter how rose-colored glasses we look at the past, people are selfish individuals. And if you work for lords and you're basically, at the end of the day, 
You have the Bushido code. You have your honor, your family, your loyalty. It's all good. You're a hired gun. You work for your boss. You're the killing sword for your boss. If your boss is going to die and you're going to die, I guess my boss is stupid then. I guess I'm, I guess I work for you now. I mean, ultimately, mm. they could all just become mercenaries. And a lot of the time throughout the history of samurai, they did. A samurai who had lost their master was known as a ronin. So when you hear about the, mm-hmm. the tale of the 47 ronin or what a ronin is, it just means it's a samurai with no master. The idea of the wandering samurai is like a cultural idea, but that just means you're a ronin. If you have no master and you're without purpose and without cause, you're a ronin. So a lot of times that would happen. And ninjas, on the other hand, were trained similarly in this, you know, super detailed way where your whole life was that. But they had more of a deep code that was to serve the people who um, needed their help. I mean, they were used as assassins, as spies, as bodyguards, but... For whatever reason, as history shakes out, uh, samurai are much more tied in to, to greed and their master's will and the will of history. And ninjas seem to have been more loyal and uh, to a fault, maybe. And a lot of times they might have been killed because they were too loyal and they didn't see which way the wind was blowing. Or they saw which way the wind was blowing. And they said, fuck that. I know this is not going to benefit me, but I'm going to stick to my guns. And this is the guy I backed. I'm going to stay with him. And samurai don't always do that, as we'll find out the story here. Yeah, and you mentioned the the Ronin, which um, while we flow, we might as well talk about them for a second. Yeah, please. Um, <clears throat> I believe as things went on, that just became more of a commonality than than not. Most samurais, they were you'd find them kind of just hanging around. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As the story goes on and Japan becomes more unified, the daimyo mm-hmm. start falling off, and that just means more and more samurai who become Ronin. You know, samurai without masters. Yeah, and that's and and they would just kind of be chilling, walking around, sleeping, eating food, just not fighting battles, but still, you know, they walk with a certain prowess. Like they're yeah. always watching. And like what did you say before? All their skills are and the whole life dedicated to killing people. So what do you do when you have nothing to do? Your only marketable skill is killing, and there's no war to be had. Yeah. So so um, so in the movie Forty Seven Ronin, that's exactly what it was. Their um, their based master, on a true based on a true story. Yeah, their master. Seven Samurai actually, was a movie based on a, a written story, but the Seven Forty Seven Ronin is a written historical story. Yeah, and it's a it's crazy. It's actually true. The um, the Forty Seven Ronins, their 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 master got killed unjustly, or he was forced to commit seppuku for for reasons they didn't believe in. So they wanted to avenge his death, and they ended up all. Yeah. So uh, yeah, another daimyo uh, uh, took over their land, and they they. Mm-hmm forced their master to be his servant and instead of him being a part of his court he would insult him and spit on him and make him do all kinds of insulting shit so their master pulled out his blade and struck the uh the lord in the face and unfortunately you know they killed him for the action and they were going to kill all of his samurai because they figured if you're going to be loyal to him we have to kill them all out so all the samurai dispersed and it seemed like Oh, I guess they, they just gave up on their uh, master. Real real loyal Ronin they are. They went off, became blacksmiths, f- fishermen. His head bodyguard became a drunk on purpose and would stumble around and say, oh, I'm a drunk. Look at me. I'm so shit-faced. I couldn't be thinking about that old past thing. His wife almost left him. And uh, you know, peasants would spit on him and kick him and say, you're, you're a shame. You used to be a samurai and your, your daimyo was killed. And look what you're doing. You're drinking yourself to death. You, you're a piece of shit. But that's not how the story ended, was it, Dylan? No, no, it wasn't. We'll let you guys figure that for yourself. It's top three samurai movies of all time. No question. They didn't forget to avenge their master, in they other words. They did not forget. Yep. 
crazy times. At this time, this tumultuous time that I brought up in a province, they call them prefectures, they call them fiefdoms, little sections. Let's picture the hundred states of Japan, but they're all separate. They're not united. Uh, one of them is very close to Kyoto, which is a very you know important place to take it, take the emperor. And there's three clans at the time fighting around that area. Two major ones are fighting and there's one's caught in the middle. They pick the wrong side. They get defeated. And the son of the daimyo is captured. That son is named Tokugawa Ieyasu, which is the namesake for the Tokugawa shogunate we're gonna talk about in the year 1850. So we can already tell in 1500, we're hearing a name we're gonna hear 300 years later, which means someone got to write history and someone ended up on top here. So the Oda clan comes in, they kidnap the child. The child is our, is our guy, uh, uh, Tokugawa and you know years later they capture him and they they say we're gonna ransom him to your dad we're gonna kill your son if you don't uh you know submit to us we're gonna take over your land and he goes fine kill him he goes if you if you don't kill him then I still have my son if you do kill him it only shows how loyal I am to my clan because I won't even you know surrender for my son so Reminds they me up- of, uh, who's that guy Moses is that what he did too uh, you think I'm uh, King Solomon? The the judgment of King Solomon. It, it, it's my baby. It's my baby. Well, then we'll find. We'll cut the baby in half and split it in two. And the woman nope, who said, wasn't thinking fine, of that she one. can have it." That's <laughs> that's, that's how you that know. Too. I think Moses. That's a also another story. But I think in Moses, he's uh, God tells him to bring his firstborn up to the top of the mountain. Oh, you're thinking of Abraham it. and Isaac. Ab- yeah, yeah, and he does it, and it's like that's great, guys. Like you really like. I don't care. Like if it was my kid or my anything I like has life that I am responsible yeah. for. And I'd be like, yeah, no, I believe in absolutely nothing that much. And uh, you can definitely go fuck yourself. Um, of course, dude, any God I would, insane. would be like, if you actually brought your kid to kill it, I'd be like, you yeah. failed. But you shouldn't yeah, listen no. to me. That's a good God is like, you shouldn't have brought your son to kill it. Like, you're a bad yeah, person. you dumbass. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, so uh, so yeah, they held him captive for years. This Oda clan, Oda, and uh, it, it just—they never have any reason to give him up. They just—they leave him alive. They, they usually just kill your prisoner, but like we could maybe use him at some point. But they just don't take him back until years later. Uh, the the battle rages on, and the other clan ends up winning the battle, and they demand to get the kid back. And the kid ends up being uh, Tokugawa. Uh, joins up with with a. Uh, his old clan and he says now that i'm an adult man i'm gonna use my clan i'm gonna fight back against these oda bastards and i'm gonna fight back and it's gonna be all good uh they completely overwhelm the oda forces uh and these little guys are teamed up with the other clan they team up against him they win him and that's when we get into the picture our main character who's the unification unification expert rather oda nabunaga which is oda for our idea, that proud clan leader, the one who's going to fight back. He gets beaten all the way back to his fortress, and he's only got a thousand men left in his fortress. This kidnapped kid is loving this. He's like, I'm calling back this guy who kidnapped me. He's going to pay for it. This huge clan teamed up with us. They're going to beat him. There's 10,000 plus of us in this valley, and uh, they're fucked. So Oda comes back. They're all sitting in their castle together, and he and he's nervous. He goes, "This is the end of us. They're definitely going to take us over." Next step for them, they're going to Kyoto. 
and all his men are freaking out. And they're like, this is all over. You, sh- you know, we're done. And he, and he, he turns to them and he goes, are you going to be begging for extra life every day you're alive to extend your life just one moment longer? That's how you can live your life. We were born to die. Now, who's going to join me? We're going out to face our deaths in person. You're going to die here cowering or, or live on. And they go out with him. And he really does go. And uh, he goes up to the valley. He grew up there. He only has a 1,000 men. He sends 500 of them on one end of the gulch, 500 the other end, and sends a small number of them to the top of the hill with a bunch of banners. He starts planting them all over the top of the gulch. They're lighting fires. They're making noise. He's trying to make them believe the entire army, that little part left is all on top of there. And as they're paying attention to that, a storm starts brewing. They're in their camp thinking they have them up in the hole. Everyone's drunk. There's rain's pouring down. You can't hear them. And as that goes down, those thousand men run into that valley of 10,000. They start slaughtering them bit by bit. The daimyo is watching a play and he says, be quiet. We're trying to watch a play in here. Next thing you know is the guy walks in, cuts them to pieces. They're all <laughs> dead. Like, holy shit. So these thousand guys have routed the entire army. And what they usually do at that time is say, we defeated you now. As they're running away and killing them, they say, we're all dead. And who does he come across but that kidnapped kid? And, and he goes, I'm not even going to kill you. Because I like the balls on you. And he's like, oh, God damn it, you're not going to kill me. And so Tokugawa joins up with Oda. So that little clan and the Oda clan are now teamed up. So that little kid Tokugawa is now a big man. He's going to be running the clan with him. And instead of killing him, which is the best move he could have done, it turns out, is team up. Because as the history of Japan goes on, the main reason why no one could unify it for 100 years, 200 years, everyone stabbed each other in the back. Every time someone would invade another province, they would invade them. So you're never safe. Everyone would stab you in the back. As soon as your best friend saw your weakness, they'd betray you. And this weird combination of uh, an alliance between a boy who was kidnapped by this clan and was seeking revenge on them and the clan who had kidnapped them ends up being the two clans because they won't break each other up and they won't betray each other, end up taking over all of Japan in a very similar way to that and just cutting people down left and right but the more power you grow the more people notice what the hell's going on with you and the last large threat to him comes from the north and those are from the takeda who are the horse lords basically the only people in japan who are great at doing a cavalry charge back in the times where if you have a horse you are running the thing and they have more horses than anyone else So Tokugawa's forces back in that little province, um, they are, you know, obviously reeling after that war. They, they went all the way there to help them out. They're going back there just to defend themselves. And again, they're the little toll road between everyone and Kyoto. So even though he's got a small little clan, he's just sitting out there. People keep coming through. And here come these horse lords, these Takeda, and they come charging through. Now, he could easily do this. Let them go through. They're probably going to charge right through. They'll take Kyoto. And then when they take Kyoto, they'll say, hey, here's a little something, something for you. You let us go right through your land. No problems. Just like it should be easy enough for you. Now you're in a good position. Your men aren't dying. You're not going to die. It's fine. But that wasn't how Tokugawa rolled. I mean, he was loyal to Oda. So he goes, I got to send men out there. I got to go out there and try to stop them. And he had no chance of doing it. He just had to do it. because That's the right thing to do from his loyalty standpoint. 
So he sends out a, a thousand or so men with those arquebuses, those old fashioned muskets, the almost like miniature cannons on your arms. You would tap it down. They're very inaccurate, but they're like muskets. And he goes up there with a, a you know a couple hundred of those and some samurai to go down. And they just get wiped the fuck out by those horses. Those Take horses run right through them. And it was so dire that it is said that when they got back to the fortress of Tokugawa's fortress, there was only five men left there, five fighting men. So at the fortress, there'll be like, you know, people maintaining it. But they got back and there's five soldiers there. And he's like, how did you even make it back here after all that? You were as good as dead. So obviously at this point, you get back to the fortress. It's time to write your poems commit seppuku it's done there are thousands and thousands of horses coming to march on you now and you're as good as dead it's over but luckily for tokugawa he had hattori hanzo and his ninjas there waiting for him and the smartest thing that they could have done at the time probably was to say yep this is over for you guys we're ninjas why the fuck do we care what you guys are doing we're out of here we're bailing you're, you're as good as dead you're even as more as good as, dead as the other guy was and the horses come marching in they come all in there and uh as they arrive tokugawa thinks even smarter than oda was and he goes there's only five of us not a problem he has one of his men light every brazier around the fortress so it looks like it's fully lit up for a, a large-scale battle and he takes the war drum and starts pounding on the war drum as loud as he can and he goes open the gates wide open and he opens the gates of the fortress so they only have five fighting men there and they open the gates to potentially a couple thousand cavalry and they're riding up on them and they're going, what the fuck is this? It can't be this <laughs> easy, right? There's no way they're just opening the door. We just run right in there and kill. I thought there was like, you know, a couple of guys left, but there's obviously a bunch of them in there if they're this ballsy about it. Uh, maybe they're just trying to trick us. And as that's going on, all that you know, loud noise and circumstance, Hattori Hanzo and his team of ninjas start to go through the front lines of the enemy and kill them in secret. So they're starting to see people dying around them. They don't know what's happening. And it's dark out. They hear the drums. They see the fire. And they go, ah, okay, this is obviously a trap. There's probably thousands of them in, in there. And this is just a bull, big bullshit thing to get us to go in there and get all killed. We're not doing this. And they all leave. So with five people and a team of ninjas, they defended the entire fortress against thousands of soldiers. They all retreated. They go fuck That's this. That's crazy. It's one of the principles. It's Chinese, but Sun, uh, Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu. Yeah. In his book, The Art of War, <clears throat> one of his key things is when you are when you are weak, act strong. And when you are strong, act weak. It's literally the best example of that in history. That is just, yeah, I absolutely agree. That just, it, it worked out perfectly for them that way because they figured there's no way they would put this much risk into that if that wasn't the case. So awesome. those two stories really give me an insight of like how Oda and uh, Tokugawa are like, these guys, they kind of deserve what they got because they knew how to like work it when they were in their most dire straits, they still got out of it alive because these two guys go on to be the top dogs of the whole country. And they had two instances where they were as good as dead. And instead of rolling over, they said, I'm a double down awesome it's like in the movie the seven samurai seven samurai when they the the <clears throat> the whole plot of the movie is that there's these farmers who get attacked by uh, i was gonna say raiders but they're um i guess raiders is the word but that's not what they call them they're yeah, like um, bandits bandits yeah they say bandits so they, they just they keep getting attacked by bandits they steal all their grains which i think was barley at the time and they don't even, they couldn't even they were too they were too poor to even have rice and um 
so these farmers who are these like incredibly weak and completely scared and terrified farmers i mean like the movie like i don't know if it plays it up or if this is how it actually was but it's mind-blowing like how scared of everything they are this one guy there's like this hostage situation and this one guy walks in there and gets the baby out and kills the guy or whatever it is that guy is Mm -hmm. can be uh shinada she nada um and he's this experienced samurai who you know uh who has experience and he's pretty funny about it but he um he comes up with this whole, they finally get him to convince him to fight for nothing. You know, he basically, he's like, oh, I'll have to hire a team of samurai to come in. They're not going to, we'll get paid in rice or barley or whatever it is, but that's it. This is not even, it's barely for honor. It's just, if you want to fight, come, come with me, but it's, it's, there's nothing in it for you, basically. And when he comes up with the plan, it's just so methodical and smart and played out where you mentioned having them, <clears throat> um, you know, open the gates and have nobody in there. What they did yeah. is they they picked off the enemy uh, one by one for most of the movie. So oh, they'd be yeah. these guys would be charging on horses and they'd be running through, and they would let one horse in and then 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 charge with spears at the other horses, and then they retreat. Then that yeah. one guy in a horse is it's him versus like two hundred people, and, and they thought. kill him. And then just one by one, they would just pick him off like that, and it was just like, so methodical and so so very uh, so very bushido of them to do it that way. Yeah, and, and again, yeah. it's playing for the win, right? Because there's so much more pride in order to uh, just go out in a blaze of glory, but it's smarter to be like, I'm going to play mm-hmm. for the win here. And sometimes you have yeah. to wait one day for another day when it comes to it. Yeah, out, uh, out wait, out, be, be more patient than the enemy. It was, it was pretty cool. Pretty good movie. So in the meantime, he's left, left his province by himself and he trusts his soldiers and his samurai to be like, defend this while I'm gone. I'm going to get reinforcements and I'm going to come back. It's going to take a little while though because you know this happening. In the meantime, the fort gets sieged. And the people there are starving to death. And the Takeda are completely surrounded them with all these horses. And they're basically fucked. And this one brave man, uh, he decides, I'm going to run the the, uh, the blockade of this siege. And I'm going to get try to find uh, Tokugawa and like ask him uh, for some supplies and let him know how long you're going to be. Because we're going to starve to death here in like probably four or five days, they thought, was how much they had left. Uh, so he dives into the river you know, like jumps off the top banisters into the river and the Takeda weren't dumb. They string up long lines of bells all along the riverbank so that if anyone tried to leave the fortress, they could hear them leaving. So you couldn't see. They loved moves like that. There's a, there's another name for it too, but some of the homes of these people had extra squeaky floors and there's a sound. Yeah. In Japan, you can go visit one of these houses um, where the floors are by design basically impossible to walk on without making them make these crazy creaks because they I didn't they, know that yeah yeah you can if you visit japan I, I heard it's still it's a it's a museum and you can walk on that floor and try to not make it a squeak and they're like yeah some people can make it like two feet but that's insane after that it's, it's great just, for not being assassinated but it's gonna be hard when you have to go up and take a piss in the middle of the night you wake up your whole family right right right, right. yeah right <laughs> <laughs> i guess it gets priorities yeah so yeah, the guy slips away. He goes under the bells. He's in the deep of night. I can't believe the resolve in people like this. The guy sneaks all the way, you know, to find uh, Tokugawa and Oda and goes, hey, this is what I'm here for. I found it the whole way. People are waiting out, but they only have a couple of days left. Give me some supplies. I'm going to sneak back over there and I'm going to tell them you're on their way. You're on your way rather because 
I mean, I can't imagine now if if someone's late for dinner and they don't talk to me for an hour, I'm I just go home like fuck it, they're not coming. These people are waiting weeks at a time. They think there's no one coming back. But if you could know for sure that the savior is coming, they're gonna come and free you. Don't give up now. Don't die. Don't give in. You're gonna be saved, and you're gonna be so glad you waited. That's all you need. You can you live another 48 hours off of that hope that's gonna happen as long as you're sure of it. And so this guy, he wanted to go back and make him sure of it. He could have rode back in with Oda and Tokugawa and he could have taken the fortress with them. But he goes, no, no, no. I don't want them to wait out. They might not make it. So he decides I'm going to sneak back into the fortress I snuck out of. And unfortunately for him, the Takeda got a little wise to that. And they kept moving the tripwire and the bells every day. So he gets caught. Wait a minute. So he snuck back into one he already snuck out of and snuck into as a he'll never do that again move but he, they he, thought he might do that again move because they know him well yeah i guess they, they weren't just thinking that it was him they were thinking we're going to move the tripwire every day in case people get wise to it and that way if we keep changing it if people are getting messages in and out then we'll know they didn't know he snuck out they only know he snuck out ah, when they catch him sneaking it. back in okay and he shouldn't have <clears throat> snuck back in in hindsight because you know he wouldn't have got caught because he already got out. But now he's he's trying to sneak back in to give these people hope and let them yeah. know they're on their way. Just wait a little longer. Yeah, yeah. Gets caught. So he gets caught and they go, what's your plan? And he he, he won't give it up. And they go, obviously, Oda and, and uh, Tokugawa are coming back, right? And he goes, oh, fuck you, you know. And he goes, well, well, I'll give you a deal here. Maybe they are coming back. They must be. You must have told them, right? We're going to raise you up and you tell the people that fortress that they're not coming. You tell them right now, they're not coming. There's no hope. Give up now. If you do that, we'll let you live. And he goes, all right. All right. All right. Fine. If you're going to kill me, if I don't do that, then fine. I'll tell them they're not coming. I'll, I'll, I'll lie to them. I'll tell them that. And they go, good. Go ahead. So they take him out in the fortress the next morning. They put him up on a crucifix or like a big cross. They lift him up. <laughs> so he can't move, but he can talk. And they go, you know what to say, big boy. Go tell them. Tell them they're not coming. And he takes a deep breath and he goes, they're on their way. They're going to be here any day now. They're on their way. <laughs> Don't give up hope. They stab him to death right there. Fucking I love when they do that. Like, uh, I'm going to say it. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, mean, I love the guy. He was, he could have, and he's like, no, no, no. Like I, the whole mission I did is to give him hope. I'm not going to make them lose hope now and give up now. So yeah, he says, don't, don't give up. They're just about to be here. And they stab him to death right there on the cross and he bleeds out. Yeah, yeah. They put oh, they were like, you son of a bitch. Fucking we asshole. Told, I knew we told you, you were doing shit. We told you to not say that. And you, you said it. <laughs> it was good stabbing. That's great. I love those men like who oh, do that. Just to, they, I mean, there's so much value in just saying the wrong thing that you know you're not supposed to say, and you just go, yeah. Oh, yep, I'm gonna say this. Yeah, I mean, and how <laughs> and many get, every funny that? movie happens where that, that happens and <laughs> someone gets their legs broken or hit in the chest with a baseball bat because they're just not supposed to say that to the mobster, and they do anyways because they're like, it's... Yeah, like Tommy, what did I say? I said, Go fuck your mother. That's what I say. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yep, oh, that's great. Because then Oda goes back, all the major threats to him are gone. And as a proof of his loyalty, Oda says, I'm going to be the Shogun of Japan now. And, and Japan's going to be one country. Every clan is going to be united under me. This is the new Japan. And uh, Tokugawa, because of all your loyalty to me over all these years, you don't have to fight in my army. Your men can just chill out in your province, defend your families, whatever. You guys get a pass. 
all of other all the rest of Japan, you guys are on notice. You're conscripted. None of you are on my side now. I run the shit. If I want to fight a war, you're fighting for me. Got it. Only Tokugawa doesn't have to fight. And everyone else has to fight. So now Japan is theirs for the first time in the history of Japan, especially after this huge 100-year-long civil war. Oda has unified Japan under one banner, and that's the banner of Oda. And that's Japan now. And that's the way it's going to be. So he goes on a nice uh, victory tour with him in Tokugawa. He goes, hey, man, you're my loyal guy. Let's go down south for a while. We're going to have our you know, administrators start to settle this out. And uh, in the meantime, there's a bit of a, a rebellion in the north. You know how it's going to be. This is how the new Japan is now. I'll send my guy, my general up there to fight for them. Now, his general fighting in the north happened to have been Hideyoshi, his little slipper boy from earlier in the story. He's grown to the ranks of being a slipper boy and then uh, probably a slipper man and then maybe mm-hmm. a soldier. I don't know how he got there, but slowly but surely, he becomes a general in his army. And that general is now fighting in the north. He's known him for years and years and years. And when they're on their little vacation in the south, there's Oda and his army. And Tokugawa only has a small, you know, little retainer of bodyguards around him because he's just on vacation with them his province is still defended by his guys he's there under oda's blessing and his bodyguards are only about you know 10 20 people but one of them amongst them satori hanzo the ninja warrior from earlier in the story he's always by his side and tokugawa has always been loyal to the ninja clans of japan even when oda centralized the power he said Maybe we should kill all those ninjas. We don't know who they're loyal. They're not a part of any like country or they're just their own thing. We should probably kill them all. And Tokugawa was like, no, 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 no. The ninjas are cool. Trust me. We like the ninjas. Don't fucking kill all of them just because they won't pledge allegiance to you. Trust me, they're good. He goes, all right, all right, Tokugawa. All right, if you say so. So they're down there in the south and Oda gets a message from the north and he goes, hey, man, this, this, uh, this rebellion in the north isn't going so well. We're going to need some reinforcements here. And he goes, all right, fine. Hey, Tokugawa, sorry, this vacation has to get cut short. I'm going to go up north. I got to go help him out. I'm going to go to Kyoto just to take care of some things since I should probably be there in the capital. And then I'm going to go up north, finish up that siege in the north, and then we're going to be all set for this. No big deal. So he leaves. Uh, And Tokugawa stays with the army. He's still on vacation, hanging out. And it wasn't money, maybe a day or two later that he finds it like, uh uh-oh, shit has not gone right. Oda goes back to Kyoto. When he gets back to Kyoto, his military assassinates him. His personal guard is attacked by his, his own general, the one who gave him the message that they needed help, brings him back to Kyoto. He orders his soldiers to kill him. Now Oda, who is the new shogun of Japan, the first one to run the whole country, is murdered by his own general. And his own general goes, ha-ha, he did all this. Now I'm the shogun. That's the deal. I run Japan now. Now kill Tokugawa. He's the fucking guy who's loyal to him. Now kill his ass. So now all the people surrounding him, this whole army he's been with, is now all trying to kill him. He's in the behind enemy lines. He didn't even know it. They're all going to try to kill him now. So he needs to get out of there fast. Meanwhile, Hideyoshi, who sent the letter, is like, I should be getting help right about now. And one of the scouts goes, hey, uh, dude, uh, you know, uh, Oda got murdered by his own guys, our army. Uh, he kind of betrayed the whole army. He's like, motherfucker. All right, let's get, siege people. Siege people. What do you think's going on here? Are you done yet? And they go now. And goes. How about we call the siege off, and you send your uh, your leader out. He commits seppuku in a boat, and then we say we're all good. And they go okay. And he goes all right, bye. So he leaves the siege behind, goes back to Kyoto, mm-hmm. kills the general who trade who's a traitor, 
And his whole force comes back and just takes the capital back and goes, you fucking traitors. And he kills the betraying general. He kills all the traitors. Now Hideyoshi is the shogun of Japan. And he's reclaimed it for Oda. And he goes, fuck this traitor. They're all dead. But meanwhile, Tokugawa is stuck behind enemy lines. And they haven't gotten that message yet. The message is kill Tokugawa. It's over. But he's got Hattori Hanzo on his side and the ninja and this seems like a mythical movie. And it doesn't seem like it could be real or not. This is actual history. Hattori Hanzo is like, I know a secret ninja way to get us back home from here behind enemy lines. And as he takes them through with like a, a handful of guys, they go to different ninja conclaves around the country and they gather more and more ninjas to help them pass through. They find other ninja clans who are rivals to them and they see Tokugawa and they go, oh, this is the guy who, this is the guy who said we'll kill the ninjas. Dude, you're all right, man. You're the guy who said we want to kill him. Yeah, you know what? Fuck it. Yeah, this guy likes ninja. You know what? Fuck it. I, I won't fight you today. This guy's cool. So all the ninjas team up to save Tokugawa, and they whisk him back away to his kingdom while the whole country, under the pretense of the false general, is trying to kill him. And he makes it home by the ninjas sneaking him back home. And by the time he gets home, now Hideyoshi has become the shogun, and now he's not in danger anymore because now the betrayer is dead, and we finally have... Uh, unified Japan in the way that we would see going forward here. So the story ends um, as Hideyoshi is the shogun now, and he's the shogun in the way that we would see in the, the modern day uh, idea of what we think about what is Japan. He puts into law, first of all, this is unified Japan. We have a caste system now. You cannot change your station. If you're a peasant, you're a peasant for life which is kind of ironic, meaning that he rose from a servant to the shogun, but now he's making it illegal to do what he did to come to power. Kind of like winning American Idol and saying, I, I can't, no one can become famous just become being talented. You have to be famous already or you're it, which I always thought was kind of fucked up that you would, I mean, he's the, the, the Charlie and Chocolate Factory story. Charlie becomes Willy Wonka and he says, no more golden tickets. Fuck you. Only I get to do that. It's crazy. I, I, it's such. It's just very hard to believe that this is a true story, and it is. And it's and it's the foundation of Japan. Not that our American story is any. It's way more boring, but you know, still <laughs> yeah. fucked up. This is. So, yeah. <clears throat> this is uh, pretty incredible in that. It's just it's it's just nuts, and all that you know comes into play even today. I mean, people still practice bushido in certain ways, and in the principles that the that you're talking about and yeah all the way through definitely through world war ii i mean if they thought right. so if this is what it, i yeah sorry so he makes it the, the the caste system goes goes as so the emperor's on top they always keep him there the shogun's mm -hmm. right underneath which is you know the real seat of power then he goes daimyo then samurai then farmer then artisan and at the very, very bottom, in the mud pits in the shittiest part of society, merchants. People who only sell things for money. They don't farm. They don't build things. They're not samurai. They're not lords. And they sure as fuck ain't the shogun. They're those shitty little merchants. And he locks it in and he goes, that's life. That's all it is. And also, I don't like this idea of everyone in the entire country having swords. It's kind of fucking me up. It's kind of made it so there's been 100 years of war. So anyone who's not a samurai... You have to relinquish your weapons today or die. And he had so much power at that time. It just shows you mm -hmm. how much power they had. People did it. They yeah. all handed in their swords. And the only people if left. If you're not a samurai, sword. you can't have a sword. 
Yeah, the only people left with swords after that time were samurai. So it was all banned. If you were a farmer or if you were an artisan, no more swords for you. Only samurai and bodyguards of daimyo can hold swords from then on out. And it worked. I mean, it really did change Japan for the most part. The only people holding swords were um, military members, samurai. Uh, but unfortunately, now you have a peacetime. Japan's unified. You have the only people with swords in the country are people whose job is to kill for a living and they have no other skills. So now you have a bunch of guys wandering the countryside with swords and they get an itchy trigger finger as it were, and they want to kill. And he's got to find something to do with that because he wants to keep them as part of his loyalty, but he can't just have them around waiting for, you know, getting work. So they decide why not take our empire to the next level? We're, we're finally unifying Japan for the first time. Let's conquer out and unify. We'll take all these samurai that are all bored and use their talents for the right way. And they try to invade Korea. So Hideyoshi takes samurai to Korea. And boy, does it not go well for them. It's a complete massacre of total failure. It sounds a good idea going into it just to utilize these samurai. But it's such a failure that most of the uh, samurai at the time are wiped out in in the uh, invasion of Korea. And that works out really well for Tokugawa. Because if you remember, his men are the only part of Japan that does not have to fight for the shogun. So his entire force is still strong, which leads to him uh, a couple of years later becoming the strongest man in Japan as the Shogun falls, Tokugawa takes over, and then it, he forms the first ever solid dynasty that's nice and even out, try to take care of it well, and that's the Tokugawa Shogunate, which lasts until um, post-Civil War, where we'll get into when Commodore Perry shows up. That's exactly the mm-hmm. same government that was there, you know, great, great, great grandson. But it's the same idea the whole way through. It never changes since then after the unification. Matthew. Calbreus Perry was Commodore of the United States Navy, who commanded ships in several wars, like you mentioned, the War of 1812 and the Mexican-American War. And uh, also, he was a huge character on the television show Friends. It was a big breakout role for him. Yep. Crazy that 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 guy with no neck did that. Um, And uh, he played a leading role in the opening of Japan to the West with the convention of Kanagawa in 1854. So, so Joe, what, what's up with that? I think we've established who the samurai are, stories about their, uh, their lives, what they really end up being, always scoping from these uh, legendary warriors with their skill and their loyalty, all the way to these backstabbing ronin who have lost their lords and their you know bandits in the streets. I mean, it really does sweep the gamut. The word samurai is so broad, you couldn't say it's one person. It's all kinds of things. I mean, you can meet a samurai who would commit seppuku because he dishonored his lord and he would avenge them like the 47 ronin or his lord is killed and he starts robbing and stealing and killing it doesn't really matter um that you're a samurai everyone takes their own path and some people decide to follow bushido some don't it's all a matter yeah, of this. and i think that's a really good uh point that i was i was hoping to make too is that bushido seems like it's not at all designed to be this way, but it was it was practiced as a spectrum. So you have the eight principles, but it sounds to me 
like most people don't really follow all of them. They might try, they might be a drunk. They might, they might have things that they slip up because they're humans. Mm-hmm. And the movie, the seven samurai makes it so, so clear that that is realistically what it is. I mean, a lot of them, they, they surpass a lot of yeah, the beyond the story, right? The real, the real deal, what the real happened? deal. Yeah. The real deal is that these guys, a lot of, most of them were Ronin and, Bushido was a spectrum that they all might have at one point really believed in, but as they get older and more war hardened and this type of stuff, sure, they had too much sock. There would be it, yeah, exactly. And and a lot of them would, I mean, they would break the rules of this too. I mean, they did some some of the samurai didn't do some accordingly did some great things. They some of them would kill when they weren't for no reason. Um, they did some stuff that was kind of fucked up, like they tested weapons on animal on on live animals or a red one. Not sure if it's true or not. But the particularly wealthy ones um, would test their weapons on human beings, like yeah. prisoners. Absolutely. And that, I that, that, that definitely yeah. f- goes against Bushido. 100, of course, yeah. 110%, but they were still doing these things. So the realistic nature of this is that, in principle, um, it's all perfect. And if they were to follow those perfectly, it would make a lot of, it would be incredible. But the realistic yeah. nature is, Ronin mixed with a spectrum of Bushido is likely to be the samurai. Um, but I, I, I firmly would believe that I'd still want them on my side. Me too. But yeah, it really does show like how you can take any belief system and as righteous as you are in the moment, you have these tenants. Ultimately it comes down to the character of who you are as a person, right? You can follow them to the T because you believe that way, or you can start to kind of make them a little bit sliding up and down the scale, depending on what you're feeling that kind of day. And you know, there's samurai who could justify anything to kill someone, you know, testing live weapons on people. I mean, mm-hmm. many of these shogun and these daimyo who were so, you know, loyal to a T would turn on each other and they would capture people, kill prisoners. I mean, I didn't mention uh, one of the largest parts about Oda. I mean, it's not like such a hero. One of his biggest victories, uh, he couldn't take a castle that was deep towards Kyoto and he decided instead of um, sending wave after wave of men to fight them because they're so... Uh, well prepared he burned the whole forest down and burned the whole uh, temple down killing uh, hundreds of women children and all the soldiers because he said this is the new japan and i will and i will win at all costs where's the bushido then right what are you doing you're killing kids women they're innocents in this but victory is the ultimate goal right the ends justify the means he plays Mm -hmm. to win and it's all well and good being you know the ceremonial samurai until you get in the way of what you want by having to follow Bushido, in which case you toss it out the window and you say, well, I hope everyone else follows it because I'm not going to, I want to win and I want more money and more power. So fuck it. Yep. That's just how belief systems work in history. And it doesn't just have to be ancient Japan. It happens 10,000 years ago and it'll happen in 2022 as well. You better. Well, so, so as, as the, the world kept moving forward and less wars start, start less wars were, Going on, less battles, less disputes, uh, you name it, with um, with the Daimo and clans and foreign invasion and new technology. The samurai started to get a little bit obsolete. Um, so they were they didn't have jobs as much. And a lot of them um, in the 1800s, specifically after the Civil War ending in 1969. American started, Civil War. Sorry, yeah, the American Civil War. Um, started yeah moving towards other professions or being teachers of martial arts and Mm -hmm. that type of stuff 
Yeah, and then around that time as well, when America started to try to uh, seize its power as a true nation, they had just been through their own civil war, like you said. They started to gain a little more, more uh, wealth after the uh, the rebuilding of the nation. And uh, that came upon the time where Millard Fillmore, as you brought in, comes in. They send Commodore Perry down to Japan. And the story is, as I thought of it, you know, by as a kid learning about it, whatever, in history class and, and watching The Last Samurai, the Tom Cruise movie and all this shit is that, that <laughs> is that the English people came in, they said, fuck your samurai, we don't like you Japanese, you know, bitches, and we're going to take your land. And that's that. So take that. And then Japan said, Japan as a nation said, how dare you say it? We all love the samurai and we're all about the samurai and how dare you. And those greedy Westerners with their guns and their money came in and they killed every last one of them. And the last samurai died in honor to fight for old Japan and, and Japan never wanted any of that. But I, I come to find that as all history is a little more nuanced than that. As I said before, there's no good guys and bad guys in history. It would make it a lot easier to talk about mm-hmm. if it was. And it's a little bit more nuanced than that. So as far as I understand it going down, it still went relatively that way. When America showed up, they came up with a decree uh, with their Navy saying, how about you guys open up your borders for trade and immigration and our politicians, our uh, emissaries to come in and start kind of westernizing Japan. The reason why they might have been more apt to fall for this um, deception, as it were, they're basically saying, we're going to take you over. They even mailed them a white flag and they said, you're going to want to use this when we show up next time because we're going to come back and you know what to do. And, you know, Japan is a proud people. They have been locked off for years. I mean, they only had one island you could trade off of. And Portugal, the Netherlands, Britain, they've all tried to trade with them for centuries. And they said, no can do, not going to happen. And they successfully were isolated for centuries because they would not open their borders. And every other country did, they would not. The island nation wouldn't do it. But after the opium wars in Britain, when Britain basically went to war with China because they refused to trade them drugs and then they beat China, uh, Japan was like, that's what they can do? Because it's something that dumb? I don't know. America might have a point here. I don't know if we should really keep fighting them. I mean, they, they, they beat China after opium. China could beat us. We're just Japan. And Americans didn't come by and do this. So people were nervous about it. And what I thought was that yeah, there's a unified Japan. We get to fight against them or we decide against them. But like any idea politically or idealized, it was split in half. And funny enough, it comes down to the shogunate, the shogun and the emperor, like it did 300 years earlier. The shogun, who was still the ruler of Japan and his name Tokugawa. It's the same name as his great, great, great grandfather from 300 years ago, but his name was Tokugawa Yoshinobu, but it is the same name. He was part of the Tokugawa dynasty the last hundreds of years. And weirdly enough, he thought and his supporters thought, and he had a lot of supporters because he was the warlord of Japan, that maybe we should. I mean, we can see all these other countries becoming rich, how China was destroyed by Western culture because of these technologies and their imperial war machine. Maybe we should get with the times here. If we want to keep our power, maybe we should let them in. We'll start to get more money, more intelligence. We can start to industrialize and make a more powerful Japan. And they were about it. So they were ready to let them right in. But the emperor and the Japanese loyalists and all the people who said Japan's for the Japanese, get the barbarians out of here. They were completely against it. So again, 
years later, the country was split in half. And it wasn't as simple as the Westerners trying to invade and saying, this is the bully note, you get out or you die. The country said, we're with the Westerners, we're going to have their help with defeating you. And the other one said, we're loyal to Japan, that's it. And they split into two groups, which was the Shogun and the Emperor. The same as then, it comes back again, and they get all these loyalists from each side. The Shogun at the time is now living in Edo, which is not the same as back living in Kyoto, where is where the emperors lived the whole time. And instead of them seating one way or the other, both sides declare they're doing this for the greater Japan and to save the emperor. So the Shogun says, the emperor doesn't know his own good. We're going to save Japan. And the emperor goes, I'm the guy. And they, they go fight that way. So they come up with uh, a huge war that happens, which is called the, uh, the Boshin War. And simple enough, make a long story short, it's between the emperor and the reformationists, the ones who want to bring Japan back to the way it used to be, get all the outside influence out. We're done. We don't need all that crap. It's over. And the Shogun and his loyal warriors between him and saying, we're going to make it a new Japan. So first thing out of the way, everyone's got guns. They have revolvers. They have musket. It's not just the same. I mean, they have the swords on their hip, but they're, they're holding muskets. Like it's new wage warfare as, as this goes. So the idea that people are only fighting with swords is just, you know, that's more fiction. Even samurai at the time had revolvers on their hips. It was just a better way to kill people. That's why you put you do even the Shogun were using revolvers and they had their sword too, but that was the way it was. So it goes into the war and uh, as it, as it rages on um, it's only minor battles to, to begin with. And then the Shogun uh, starts to make a big move uh, as both sides are looking for help from either side. So the Shogunate decides to reach out to France and they start buying warships from them. They start hiring uh, French generals. So this is the time of Napoleon and Napoleon's great at taking over the world They're trying to hire his generals to teach him how are we going to take over this country we're definitely going to join up with the West. Just help us do this. If we win, then Japan's going to be open. And then you can just like trade with us and it's all good. We're going to be part of you. Help us out here. Uh, but unfortunately, the empire, the emperor rather, and his side did the same thing. They started recruiting British ships and doing the same deal. Get us muskets, get us rifles. We can put a rifle in the hands of a peasant and they can be as deadly as a well-trained samurai because of the march of modern technology, which ends up playing a huge role in the downplay of samurai because being a specialized warrior with a katana, you can give a gun to a kid and they can kill you. You've just cut out, you know, 40 years of training and the Bushido and the whole thing of it. And that ultimately ends up being uh, what pulls out the victory as much as it is part of the story. The Shogunate goes to fight the emperor's forces. It's about 10,000 to 2,000. And they show up there with their katanas blades wielding and they get lit up by Gatling gun Gatling guns uh for the first time they see a uh, repeating machine gun the artillery the the emperor even though he went into the war and his his fighters uh including his main uh advisor and main warrior Saigo Takamori who we will know as the last samurai the last samurai Saigo Takamori is fighting with the also emperor known as Captain Nathan Algren <laughs> he also whitewashed as it. Yes, yes, yes. His, uh, his born yeah. name. Yeah. So Saigo Takamori is fighting on the side of the emperor because he wants to make Japan, 
you know, back to old Japan. And funny enough, his side is using artillery, which uh, the Shogun doesn't have. They're using Gatling guns. And he is an old-fashioned samurai warrior fighting on the side of him. And as soon as the first battle rages, they realize that this, they're outmatched and the Shogun should have taken more uh, credence into leaning into all that mentality. Uh, to cut that long story short, the Emperor's forces win the war and, and they, uh, they take the Emperor from Kyoto as a point of pride. They make a big ceremony, cost a ton of money, and they move him from Kyoto to Edo. And then they rename Edo Tokyo. And they call that the new Japanese center. The shogun is gone. The emperor is the new leader. There's no more shogunate. There's no more caste system that they made all the way back then. There's no more levels. Everyone's equal. We're all part of the Japanese empire. And we're going to be a modern nation. We're going to build, we're going to build factories. We're going to have a navy. We're going to use a standing army. Uh, you don't need to be technically proficient in a katana. You're a soldier. You're a human. You, you get a gun. You get a uniform. Dress head to toe, rations, modern army, the whole thing. That's the whole deal. And that's how it's going to be. And that's how it is. And the only person who's mostly against it is on the winning side. Saigo Takamori is an old-fashioned samurai. He fought this whole war with the emperor to try to bring old Japan back. And as soon as they win, they go, yeah, we're making it into the West. He goes, what the fuck did we fight this whole war for? I would have been on their side if I knew as soon as we were going to win, you're going to make it all the Western things. So as soon as the side against it won, they immediately folded and doubled down with the West. They were let everybody in there, Christians, capitalists, traders, the whole thing, they let everybody in. They started teaching them how to uh, build factory weapons. No more 10 years to build a perfect sword and become a blacksmith. Fuck it. Put a factory in there, start pressing things together, and that's how it's going to be. And as soon as you conquer the nation in that way and unify it as an imperium, now you, even, you, now you have even less reason for samurai than he had in the first place 300 years later. So now it comes down to uh, Omura Masojiro, who is now the guy who is in charge of modernizing the entire Japanese military. And he says, I am outlawing samurai. Samurai are no longer allowed to exist. You have two options. You take our stipend. We can pay you in rice or money, cash, or you can be part of the new government. You can be a diplomat or a governor or something like that, but you're no longer a samurai. Samurai are dead. So now not only we're saying the peasants turn their swords, the samurai turn their swords. No one's allowed to have weapons besides the military, and that's it. And that put Saigo over the edge. He was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. I fought this whole war for you guys. I'm a samurai to the day I die. And now you're going to make being a samurai illegal. You're hunting down samurai, taking their swords, their livelihoods, their life away, and you're killing them otherwise. What the fuck we fight this war for, boys? I got an idea. Korea is refusing to believe that we're a new nation. Remember back in the day, we 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 lost the battle against them. It's perfect time. Send me and the samurai against them. Let's utilize these warriors you're trying to take out, and we'll make good use of this. And your new empire will grow, and all that bullshit you guys mm -hmm. want, right? And they go, I don't know. I think it's better if we just cut the whole samurai out, and then we'll just do the modern war machine. Give us some time. We'll build the navy up and do it the right way. And he and he just couldn't be more upset about it. So he says, whatever, go do your own fucking <clears> thing. I'm gone. I don't so, blame him. I mean, it's. It's unfortunate that didn't happen a hundred years later because we potentially could have just let it happen. You know, they could have stayed the way, but for your defense, they had to have a strong offense. And if they weren't up to speed with the rest of the world, they're just going to get taken over. Like you said, it's a real bummer in that. <clears throat> yeah. You know, yeah, we love the, 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 uh, 
perfectly painted picture of the samurai. It's a beautiful thing and its principles can apply to everyday life in every way, shape and form. Um, and Bushido, you know, is still, you know, when you think of the Japanese military, the honor aspect of what they, who they are and what they do is very much still in place and was especially in place in World War II. True. And you can think of everything they did, you know, these people were the descendants of samurai and mm-hmm. skipping forward, you know, uh, almost a hundred years to, you know, the forties, the 1940s, their airplanes were designed to me like a katana. I mean, they were yeah. purpose built and they were super light. So compared to like, um, let's say a P-51 or, or really another Navy because they fought a lot over water. Um, the uh, Japanese Mitsubishi Zero was a light, nimble aircraft that used the principles of that to outdo the enemy. Um, yeah. <clears throat> whereas our built into the mentality, even just of designing things. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was it almost had paper thin. It pretty much had no armor. They just planned on not getting hit because by having the strong offense, they didn't need it as much. And if the U.S. Navy fighter pilots could could get you know get behind them and shoot them, there's a pretty good chance they'd kill them if they could hit them. Um, which is very much a, a samurai type of move, uh, I, I think. Is that that's a good point? That is a very samurai way to develop your technology, even into the modern age. Is that yeah. mentality, right? Yeah, Swift, and the, agile. Profession. Yeah, and it was a, exactly, and the the bushido way, even down to seppuku, was still ingrained mm-hmm. in that entire mindset of that yes, military. Yeah. Where with kamikaze, they're basically if a samurai would do it, they would do it, and that set a lot of the way that they fought warfare because there's no scarier enemy. Than an enemy who will die before he gives up. If you're not afraid to lose anything, then you got nothing to lose. There. Yeah, and that was their principles about how they fought and made them so treacherous. Um, and again, these were the descendants of the samurai. So. Saigo uh, goes back and he says, "Fuck this whole thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna start a samurai school down in the south. I'm, I'm leaving the empire behind. You guys can go get killed in Korea, and uh, if you don't want to fight in Korea, then fuck you. But it's fine." <laughs> And uh, yeah, they decided to turn all the military into uh, just modern soldiers and infantry. And he actually ends up uh, being the last samurai alive. So he gets uh, thousands of samurai to go to his cause and they refuse to give up um, the cause of being a samurai. And the empire doesn't want to invade this province full of samurai who are practicing because it's too much trouble. But when the samurai decide to rise up, 20,000 of them go and they march upon a, a fort of uh, 5,000 soldiers and former samurai who have turned uh, empire and they just get lit up. And as they march through the, uh, the countryside, more and more samurai come to their cause and they get shot down and the empire comes raining down upon them. Saigo has to retreat all the way back to his home province and those 20,000 samurai turn into 500 and the empire's closing in on them, and there's just no, no other way back. It's it for him. So they're holed up on a hill in his home province, and they're putting their muskets and their revolvers down, and they realize that this is all it for them. And this is not just it for them. It's, it's for the way of old Japan. The war that he fought and won for old Japan uh, is over. It's, it's just done. And there's artillery shells raining upon the countryside, and they're just sitting there with their, their katanas, and they decide to put up those top knots, tie down their hair and pull out their blades. And, and they do the one last charge down the hill. And there's no Americans in this charge. They're all Japanese samurai. <laughs> Tom Cruise wasn't there at all. 
<laughs> and it was it was Japanese fighting Japanese in this. There was no Europeans in this fight at all. It was Japan fighting Japan. And uh, yeah, the, those 500 men charged down the hill. And at first they were winning because they were so surprised they would charge with blades alone. And they started cutting down their enemies. And uh, they were surprised running back. Unfortunately, Saigo takes a bullet to the pelvis and he gets put off his horse on the ground. And his uh, second in command uh, walks up to him and asks him if he can still fight. And uh, he cuts his head off because he, he says, I know you can't commit seppuku in the middle of battle. I'm going to take the mercy and let you die with honor on the field. He cuts his head off and all 500 of those samurai that day were killed and made an example of. So that's the last samurai to ever have existed. It's in 1869 and people still carry on the tradition now, but uh, that, that's the Man, last time that is... in history that a samurai ever existed. And it was pretty recent. I mean, people were uh, had rifles and steamships and these guys were still, you know, so committed to that code uh, to a point where they were ready to end their lives on it. He could have, I mean, he was so easily could have just said, I'm on the emperor's side. He won with him. He could have said, I'm just going to ride this into the sunset. And he goes, no, fuck this. I'm against you, even though I won. And he paid for it. That's a really dark end to the way this goes, but that's the reality of the samurai. Yeah, it's a dark that end, is... but it's an honorable end. And I think honorable... it's, a, it's a fitting end for the samurai. It sure is. It really is. And it's it's really something. Um, from what I know, they did the burial mounds with samurai if they were able to retrieve their bodies. So we can yeah. definitely put that up at the end, but there'd be mounds and there'd be a, a katana in it like this. And it's kind of yeah. a... And no one's going to take that katana. That's worse than being cursed with death. You leave that there. Yeah, you take that. That's that's a curse and a half waiting for you. Which would be valuable. That's very. Every sword was worth more than most people's year work. But Mm -hmm. you don't take that from the grave. Worse than juju. No, you don't. I mean, I'd be even nervous touching like that. That I that you know has killed people. Um, I've held a lot of guns and museums and I always get nervous and I'm holding some and I'm like, I don't know, this one looks a little too beat up to be, <laughs> to be something I want to <laughs> be well worn, a little used. Yeah, a little patina on this one's a little bit too much. Um, <laughs> sure, yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's got to there's be, I mean, I don't know, it, it just feels there's energy of some sort around that. Like this has taken how many human lives like of real people in the 16, 17, 1800, whatever, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, yeah, you got to imagine some like of the swords is... took so many lives and they still, yeah. And, yeah. Imagine you, you, that killed you and you look, you're like, that's it. That's the one that's, that's, that's the thing that made it all happen. Pretty crazy. Yeah. So our, uh, I mean, now I'll be Joe, my overall opinion of samurai is really as, as well looked upon. I love the tradition of them. I, the skeptic, the skeptics out there about how, you know, sometimes they didn't follow, follow Bushido, but I think that statistically yeah. that's just going to be the case with any that's human nature, yeah, human nature. But overall, they were a, 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 a force for good. Um, that, or, or at least a force for the good they believed in. The good they believed in, yeah. And, and they hopefully wouldn't do things that didn't fit the values, which is why they were what they were. But it's a pretty incredible story of, of who these who this group of warriors were and what their principles were and the things that they did and accomplished and unfortunately succumbed had to succumb to technology. Yeah. But they were in itself, you know, they the live by the door, live, live by the door, die by the sword. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Live by the door, you die outside. Fucking unlock. Yep. 
Um, yeah, no, it's true that yeah, live by the sword, you die by the sword. Well, they they they're they in, themselves a form of technology that was created in the ninth century or, or tenth century. Right. So maybe around then they're like, yeah, this fucking shit, we don't need that new stuff, you know. That could have been what was the conversation in the 900s. You know, I mean, that yeah, think of all the new technology. You, you couldn't know? spend your whole life learning how to fight. You had to grow some food. But, yeah. you know, a new age thing, middle age thing is to make someone's life a fighter. And, you know, they could yeah. get fed by the culture. You don't have to have them being a farmer or hunting. You just train every day to kill. That is a technology to have people yeah. in your society with, with specialized weapons that are specialized at using them. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the knowledge in itself is is uh, is a form of technology in in some way. I mean, yeah, this is right. a new way of doing things. I mean, that's why companies have um, uh, I forget what they call it, but whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. But overall, I think they're a fascinating group. Their principles can help you in day to day life today, but that doesn't even matter. Just looking back on them, they're cool as fuck. Great movies. Great movies. Great movies. They're always involved in great movies. Um, again, Seven Samurai, the 47 Ronin, Last Samurai, Kill Bill movies featured them as well. Kill Bill. Watch what else we got? Ronin Kenshin, Samurai Shampoo. Check that out. Samurai Jack we didn't mention. Great. Oh, show. we didn't mention him. Probably the most beautiful cartoon ever made. Ever. I mean, That's in the future that is our cool. Great show. <laughs> great Samurai show. Jack beautiful show crazy that that was just such a good show um anything else yeah i feel the same way it's like uh i think that the the mentalities and the ideas of them and the stories of heroism should be you know respected it's it's amazing what what they were capable of but much like anything else in history take with a grain of salt they're still people and a lot of them were pieces of shit who murdered and were bandits and killed you know willingly because like i said they're illegal allowed to kill people you call them a bad name i kill you is that honorable I guess mm. part of the rules, but then some of them would charge down a hill for the very idea of being what they dedicated their life to. So it just runs the gamut. Yeah, absolutely. The movie, the, the, the seven samurai fits that spectrum so well, each of the seven are so different. I mean, one of the guys is literally shows up drunk in the place and you're like, what's this guy doing? And you don't even know <laughs> yeah. if he is. The thing is they didn't have to, they didn't fill out. They didn't go to the police Academy, you know, right, where they're right, officially yeah. a cop. It's more, you, are you, were, you are. yeah, you were, uh, raised as a child to be a samurai and that's what happened or it's um you know so they, they leave that open to interpretation about uh, like is that guy actually a samurai or he's not and they don't really totally explain it they let him know that he's a fraud in some ways but mm-hmm. maybe not you know he's it's just so interesting because that movie yeah, it, it leaves so was- many so much open to interpretation um that made it like okay there's seven it's called the seven samurai but this guy might not be one but he is one but and there's also one who's like he's like 16 and in training, but he is samurai still. And at the end of the day, he's part of the seven samurai who defended the, the farm village mm-hmm. and were successful. And um, and uh, and then they all died. At, the ones who did die at the movie, they died as samurai. They had the katana in the mound. Yeah. And some of you know, it's, it's just a beautiful movie. It's amazing. So yeah, it reminds me of that. It was a lot where they based uh, Star Wars off of the idea that being a Jedi Knight was directly based off of being a samurai. And it, it's that same idea in the. Uh, the prequels to star wars where they yes. say you have a lightsaber you did you did you kill a how'd you get that you must be a jedi and he goes oh maybe i killed a jedi and i stole his lightsaber and he goes no one can kill a jedi it's the same idea as a samurai they same see the idea. katana they say you have a katana you must be a samurai maybe i stole it from the samurai and they go no you didn't you're a samurai aren't you i can tell why you, why you wear your blade 
George Lucas was obviously influenced by the samurai. And I don't think, did we mention this, but Darth Vader's helmet? Definite, uh, Definite. Shogun samurai helmet. Yeah, I mean, it is. Yeah. I mean, it's directly based off of, I mean, he was a huge Kurosawa fan. I mean, he watched The Seven Samurai as a kid and you know he loved it. And Hell yeah, he did. And, uh, thanks for joining us and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube, check out our Instagram and stay posted for our new forms of podcast listening functions aka streaming sound in case you are in the car and we don't want you watching the video not a good idea or on your bicycle no driving bicycles and watching movies at the same time and uh that's the dylan and joe basement podcast we'll catch you guys next week for another awesome topic (laughs) thank you joe and uh write in the comments if you guys have any ideas for us we're always looking for new things to do podcasts on give us a go originally not on pages of stuff it was uh, word of mouth we yeah, talked to it mouth, mouth to mouth, mouth. Yeah. <laughs> mouth to mouth yeah, mouth to mouth uh, translation or, or um, communication um, I've held a lot of guns and museums and I always get nervous and I'm holding something and I'm like, I don't know, this one looks a little too beat up to be, to be something I want to <laughs> be well worn, a little used. Yeah, a little patina on this one's a little bit too much. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Maybe a samurai thing. The one thing that the um, the uh, the hipsters didn't take from the samurai, they might have the top knot, they don't have the buzz top them up <laughs> so he can't move but he can talk and they go you know what to say big boy go tell them tell them they're not coming and he takes a deep breath and he goes they're on their way they're gonna be here any day now if they're on their <laughs> way don't give up hope they stab him to death right there Fucking- i love when they do that to like uh i'm gonna say it yeah there we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, mean, I love the guy was responsible for a lot of things and he was Millard was it Millard Fillmore who sent them along on this mission to go visit Japan Isn't a couple that weird? times. Millard Fillmore did it. That was like Millard Fillmore's decision. Right? We don't remember that guy. And he made a huge decision. Huge decision. Millard Fillmore. Yeah. I want that guy to be president. It's very odd. Um <clears throat> but yeah, I mean this Matthew Perry dude was responsible for more or less modernizing the U.S. Navy, Navy and using steamboats, and new technology, and kind of which is hasn't really changed since then. I mean, we've been at the pinnacle of technology since this point for, for navies, um, and they just kept peaked pressuring. in 1910. <laughs> just we kept got pressuring. steamships, and we're like, we don't need sails anymore. We're peaking. Yep, yep, and uh, he just kept pressuring the jet. Why was he pressuring Japan? I can tell you.